Okay, this is the beginning of our study in uh, this third quarter of the year. And our assignment is to study the books of Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Esther. Although we're going to do that in a little bit different order. We're going to, Lord willing, look at uh, Ezra and then Esther in the, book, in the uh, months of July and August. And then in September, uh, Brother Reeves will lead us in the study of the book of, of Nehemiah. You noticed in the uh, schedule I have there, I've got Haggai in the middle. I, I put that in there because, as you recall, I know you've studied Ezra before, they had an issue with not building the temple, and God sent Haggai and Zechariah to them to encourage them to get busy and to do what they should have already been doing. And so I thought it'd be good uh, thereafter studying Ezra to go back, it, it really in time-wise should be right after uh, chapter 4, between chapters 4 and 5, but we'll wait till the end of Ezra, then go back and look at Haggai. thought it'd be good to look and see just what he had to say. It kind of lit a fire under those folks to get them to, uh, to do what they should have already been doing. Probably be good for us too. So, so that's the plan. Uh, I emailed that out to everyone. Is, is there anyone here tonight that didn't get that. Maybe you don't have email, you don't have the schedule. All right. I printed out about 10 copies of it. It's on the window there at the AV booth. So as we exit tonight, just grab one of those off the, the ledge right there. Okay? All right. Okay, what I thought I would do in an introduction and this is going to be a little different introduction from what you're used to. Typically, in introduction, we'd talk about, well, who wrote the book and where were they when they write, wrote it and when did they write it and who did they write it to and some things like that. And we may look at a little bit of that possibly next week. But what I want to do in this introduction is to, um, to help us to put Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther more in uh, historical context as well as spiritual context. And what I mean by spiritual context is that how does it fit into God's plan of salvation? God put Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther there somewhere for some reason. And we want to look and see just how, how does that fit in with God's plans. Last year, Brother Cameron and I taught the class for the grades 6, 7, and 8. And we learned really quickly those were some sharp kids, and they already knew a lot about the Bible. They knew a lot of Bible facts and Bible characters and Bible events. And so it became our goal then to, uh, to help them to take the next step, to kind of start connecting the dots, that these aren't just isolated, unrelated events, but they're all a part of God's plan of salvation. And so when we look at Noah, see, they knew that Noah built an ark. They knew he built it out of gopher wood. He put just one door and one window, just like God said. Well, okay, that's good to know, but what does it mean to me? What does God intend me to learn from Noah that's going to help me be more pleasing to God? And in its simplest terms, what is learning? what can I learn about Noah that's going to help me get to heaven or to say it another way, how is Noah building an ark and building out a gopher wood, how is that part of God's plan of salvation? That's what the whole Bible is about. 
Someone asked me one time, well, we're in the Bible is God's plan of salvation. Well, it's from Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> it's all in there in one way or another. We just have to learn to connect the dots. So what I want us to do then is to kind of look more, I guess it's more of an introduction maybe to the Bible than it is just to Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and Esther. And I kind of call this Bible 101. It's, it's really simple. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of like the Apostle Peter said. Uh, he said, I know you already know these things, but I'm going to continually put you in, in remembrance of these things. And so nothing I'm going to say here this evening is going to be, whoo, boy, I never heard that before. At least I hope it's not, because I don't want to tell you anything new. It's going to be be the Bible. It's what I intend to, to talk about. So the whole Bible, then, is all about God's plan of salvation. If you look over, I hope you've got your Bibles with you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what that passage tells us is that God, even before he created the world, had already a plan in his mind. Should man choose to sin, he had a plan to redeem his soul, a plan to save man uh, by the means of the blood of his son. So me having an inquisitive mind then, I just wondered, well, if, if God knew before he even created us, that it was going to require his son to save us if we sinned, then when Adam and Eve sinned, why didn't he just go ahead and send Jesus? Why didn't he just send him right then? Why wait, I don't know, a few thousand years, I don't know exactly how long it was. So why did he wait? You know, Galatians 4 and verse 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So God says that at the right time, at the correct time, at the best time, that's when he sent forth his son. Well, what made that time the right time and why not right after Adam and Eve sinned? Well, I don't know that I know all of the answer to that question, okay, but I think the scriptures teach us at least part of it. We can learn part of the answer to that at least. Um, all, of the, all of the events in the Old Testament then are, uh, are a part of God's plan. And sometimes when we have some major event, and this happens even in our personal lives, some major event we plan, there are preliminary steps that have to be taken. Okay? Now just think for a moment. Let's suppose that you had an airplane over here at the airport and you wanted to fly, make a VFR flight from Murfreesboro to Bowling Green. Well, the object, the major event is to get that plane off the ground and fly you to Bowling Green, but there are some other things that need to take place first. You need to call a flight service and make sure the weather meets VFR minimums. You need to file a flight plan. Be kind of nice to make sure you had enough fuel in the plane to, to get there. Uh, set your communication frequencies, your navigation frequencies, your out, all of those things have to be set before the plane ever leaves the ground. Well, in God's plan of salvation, um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, is what makes salvation possible. That's the main event, if you will. But God, in his wisdom, understood that some other things needed to take place first. And so 
let's, let's illustrate that. In uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. John 8, verse 24. It says, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So it's pretty important then that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, right? It's pretty important that we believe that God raised him from the dead. Your soul's salvation depends on it. So let me ask you then, uh, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would expect if I did, I would probably see every hand go up except maybe some small child that couldn't understand what I'm asking. So do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? The next question is, why? Why Why do you believe that? We could talk probably for hours about why we believe that and looking at all of it. But the short answer is evidence. So one of the reasons why God didn't go ahead and send Jesus right after Adam and Eve sinned was because he knew that you and I here 2,000 years after the fact if we're going to believe that Jesus is Christ, there would have to be some evidence. You know, faith, faith is more than uh, just wishing for something or just guessing about something. Faith is based on evidence. And you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. There's the definition of faith. Now, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so God went to a lot of trouble and took a lot of time to produce the evidence so that we 2,000 years after the fact nearly have sufficient evidence to produce the faith that it required for salvation. So let's, um, let's just think about how that works for just a minute. You remember uh, in John chapter 10, this is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and uh, Jesus appeared to his apostles in the upper room, and, and Thomas wasn't there. And so later they told Thomas about seeing Jesus. He said, I'm not going to believe it until I can see the, the nail prints and the scar in his side. I won't believe it. And so by the way, it was about a week later, Jesus appeared to them again. And this time Thomas was there, and Jesus showed him the nail prints. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. See, that's us. We, we, we never saw Jesus. We never saw anybody that has seen Jesus. We haven't seen somebody snap a picture with their cell phone. You know, so it takes evidence to produce a faith so that we believe just like Thomas did. Yet this Jesus was the Christ and yes, that, that God raised him from the dead. You can see how the scriptures, I put Acts 18, verse 28, that's Apollos. He was over in Achaia, and he was studying with some Jews. And what it says there is that he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures, so he was using the evidence of the scriptures, to show that Jesus was 
the Christ. So how do, what, what evidence are we looking for? Well, there's several different kinds, and one is the prophecies. I, I have never sat down and tried to count all the prophecies regarding uh, the Christ, but I've read it, it varies depending on who's talking, but it's something over 300, whatever the number is. We just say 300 to round it off. And so what are the odds then of one person just accidentally fulfilling 300 prophecies? Brother David covered this in his uh, lesson back a few months ago in Isaiah. And you've all probably heard of the illustration as a Dr. Stoner who was really good at figuring probabilities. And he said that the probabilities of just one man accidentally fulfilling just, just eight of those prophecies to represent that, that would be 10 to the 17th power. So that's 10 with 17 zeros. Can anybody tell me what that number is? A gazillion, <laughs> something like that. So, you know, just that's just eight. He said the, the probability of one man accidentally fulfilling 48, 48 of those prophecies is, is beyond human comprehension. It's 10 to the 157th power. And so it, in order to kind of help us visualize it, he told about this state of Texas covered two feet deep with silver dollars and one of them was marked in some way and, and somebody walk out in there blindfolded and just reach in and in one try pull out that one marked silver dollar. What are the odds of that happening? Well, let's, let's change it just a little bit, maybe to help us get just a little better grasp. Let's suppose instead of the state of Texas, it was just this auditorium. Just this auditorium was two feet deep in silver dollars. And just one of them was minted in 1900. And so I put a blindfold on you, and I said, go in there, you got one try to get that silver dollar with minted in 1900. What do you think the odds are of you doing that in one try? Almost non-existent. Now imagine it was more than, it's the parking lot. We've got about two and a half, three acres. So we got, let's say three acres covered with two feet deep. Now what are the odds of finding that one silver dollar blindfolded? Now what if it was the whole city of Murfreesboro covered with silver? What if it was Rutherford County? So you see the point is uh, there's no way. <laughs> that one man was going to accidentally fulfill 300 prophecies. So what we see then is, is God working in all of this. And we're going to see this in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. You see it all through the Bible. You see it all in God's plan of salvation. You see God's hand in all of it. And God's hand was in the fact that, that Jesus fulfilled all 300 of those prophecies. It's, it's the only way it could have possibly happened. And so... The Bible, that's not all the evidence in the Bible, but there's a mountain, there's sufficient evidence to convince anyone who would give it an honest study and an honest consideration to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But there's more to it uh, than evidence to teach us things like Jesus is the Christ. In my mind, there are three passages that really encapsulate everything that we should learn and what we should get out of the Bible. And, and it kind of tells us how we should approach studying the Bible. It doesn't matter if it's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, or if it's Genesis, or if it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Revelation. 
It's the same approach. In the first, first verse I want to look at is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24. And any time we study the Bible, doesn't matter where it is, we ought to study it in the light of three passages. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 24 says, The Lord commanded to us, us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. So, so what he's saying is God's commandments, God's word is always for our good. So whatever we're studying in the Bible, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, anything else, we need to realize there's something that God put in there that's for our good. And that's the way I need to approach it. I'm looking to find out what the good is I can get out of this passage. And we'll do that in, in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, I, I hope. The second passage is, is one of my favorites in the Bible. It's, it's the 19th Psalm. And for sake of time, we won't read all of this. But just look at the words that I think I've got them highlighted there. Describing God's word, it says it's perfect. It's sure, it's right, it's pure, it is clean, it is true and righteous altogether. Well, you know, that's just exactly what you would expect from something that's always for your good, isn't it? What if, what if God's word was not always perfect? Would it always be for your good? What if it wasn't always sure, only sometimes right, not always clean, couldn't always be for our good, could it? So that's... So that fits perfectly with Deuteronomy 6 and verse 24. It tells us about God's word and God's commandments. And any time we approach the scriptures, we understand that the scriptures we're reading that God has provided for us is good and pure and right, and it's always for our good. But look at verse 11. It says, Moreover, by them, by the words of God, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward in us parents, we recognize that children don't always use good judgment. I think it was uh, Will Rogers that said uh, good judgment comes from experience and a lot of that comes from bad judgment. And uh, a lot of us have learned a lot of things by using bad judgment and getting some experience, right? But we don't want our children to have to learn everything like that and learn it the hard way, so we warn them, don't run with the scissors, right? Uh, don't play in the street. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Well, we're fallible human beings. If we know enough to teach our children and to warn our children, the perfect Father in heaven knows there's dangers out there, and we don't always use the best judgment. And he knows we need to be warned about some things. And then he goes on to say that, that uh, in keeping these commandments, there's great reward, and that stands to reason if it's always for our good. That would just make sense, wouldn't it? We're going to see in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, probably going to see some warnings there as well. The third verse is Romans chapter 15. Verse 4, it says, For whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. I see two or three things in this verse. Uh, he said that things are written earlier because he was talking specifically about the Old Testament, although these things would apply to, to all the scriptures. But it's written for our instruction. And somebody says, well, wait a minute, I thought you said that the old law has been done away and we're, su we're subject to the gospel now and not the old law. And yes, that's true. But the Old Testament contains a lot more than just the old law. 
there are godly principles that have always been true and always will be. And we can look in the Old Testament and learn a lot, a lot of good lessons. Uh, just one example of instruction from the Old Testament is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I won't read it all, but he's talking about when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and all of the things they did to displease God. In verse 6, he says uh, that, that we should not crave evil things as, as they did. Verse 7, don't be idolaters. Verse 8, let us not act immor immorally. Verse 10, let's don't grumble. Be complainers, that kind of thing. And I look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God recorded these. He didn't have to tell us about what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. He didn't have to, but he chose to do that. Why? Because it served as to instruct us. You see what they did. You see what happened to them. The outcome wasn't good, was it? And so we should learn from those instructions. And that instruction also, by the way, is a warning, isn't it? It's a warning as well. Don't be a grumbler. The outcome is not going to be good. So there, there is a warning. And so uh, all of these things we're going to see in uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So what I want to do then is let's just start at the beginning. Let, let's apply some of this and let's see kind of how that works. I want to look first at uh, Adam and Eve. We'll just start at the beginning. And without going back to read it, you're familiar with it. You know how God created Adam and Eve. They put him in the Garden of Eden, and he said, look, all of the plants and everything here is, is for your use. You've you got dominion over all of my creation, and you can take all of it for food except for this one tree, tree of knowledge of good name. Now, don't eat of that tree, but everything else you can. And, of course, the devil came along, the old serpent talking to Eve, and he said, and God had said, the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And the devil said, no, you're not going to die. You're not going to surely die. And in fact, not only will you not die, it will make you wise like God. And so Eve looked at that tree, and it, it, it couldn't, I don't see how it could have possibly been the first time she ever looked at it. But she looked at it, and she saw the fruit and said, you know, it looks good. And it sure looks like it would be good to eat. It probably would taste good. But it seems like the thing that pushed her over the edge was this thing about being wise as God. I, to me, that seemed like a little bit of pride there. A little bit of pride. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, the vain glory of life. And so she said, wow, be wise as God, I believe I'll take some of that. And so she ate it, and you know the rest of the story. Well, what, is that, what does that tell us? Well, it, there's a warning there, isn't it? It tells us about the serpent and about old Satan, the devil. Well, what, what does it tell us about him? Well, uh, that he's a deceiver. I've, I've put several passages here uh, that tell us, talk to us about the devil, but they're in just chapter 3 of the Bible. Early we're getting warnings about the devil. And Jesus tells us that he was a murderer. He's a, father, a, a liar and the father of lies. Uh, he is a schemer. And he uh, devises schemes to trip you up all the time. And that's why in Ephesians verse six, uh, chapter 6 and verse 11, talks about, you know, God prepared us for this. He's not only warned us about the deceitfulness and the lying, uh, 
not a serpent, the devil, that can trip us up, but he's given us everything we need to help guard us uh, against the schemes of the devil. There he says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. There's a number of other passages. All of them talk about the devil being seen. There, there's snares, you know, that's a, that's a trap. You know, a trap, you set it up so that whatever you're trying to trap won't see it and won't know that you're trying to trap it. <laughs> And that's the way the devil is. And so he warns us there in First Peter 5 and verse 8, be watchful, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So we see right there in the, in the uh, verses about Adam and Eve that um, there are warnings and there's instruction there right off the bat. It's not just an interesting story to entertain us. But there's information in that about Adam and Eve and what happened to them to help us to not make those same mistakes, to help us to be more pleasing to God, to, to help us get to heaven. So we see there also in, about Adam and Eve, God means what he says. He said, don't eat of that tree. If you do, you'll surely die. It shows us that uh, pride is a dangerous thing. Pride was at least part of what caused Eve to sin and we know the rest of that story. Also tells us that uh, God provides all that we need. Back over in, in uh, Romans 15 and verse 4, where it talked about the instruction, it also said that, that the, the reason for that, that was that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You know, life is not always the proverbial bed of roses or the cakewalk. Sometimes you're going to have some difficulties. You're going to have some challenges. You're going to have to persevere. <clears throat> In uh, Hebrews 10, about verse 36, he was talking to those Hebrew brethren and they were suffering. They were being persecuted. He said, you need endurance so that you may receive what was promised. We have, we have to hang in there, as we say these days. And, and part of what helps us to do that is the encouragement of the scriptures. We see a lot of that in the Old Testament, don't we? People that uh, faced more difficult circumstances than we, and yet they remain faithful. I always think about Joseph. Good man, wasn't he? Good, faithful, godly man. Well, what happened to him? His, his uh, brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery to the Ishmaelites. They took him down to Egypt and in the slavery there and he was falsely accused and arrested and in prison and all of those things but he remained faithful so when I see those puny little difficulties that I face every day and I go wow that's not anything like what Joseph faced if Joseph can make it if he can stay faithful under those circumstances so can I and so there's encouragement in these scriptures as well that helps us to endure. So there's instructions, there's warning, and there's encouragement. Cain and Abel. Uh, we're going to start to see a pattern here. One of the things we learn from Abel is that uh, obedient faith is, is really important if you want to be approved of God. And you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11 that talks about that. It uses Abel, it uses uh, Noah and Abraham and Moses and others to illustrate what kind of faith is pleasing to God. And so that's one of the lessons we learned there. And uh, if we're going to be acceptable to God, then we're going to have to learn the lesson that Abel taught. 
uh, God had instructed them. It, it doesn't record in the Bible, but he had to if he did it by faith, that God had instructed them what kind of, of uh, sacrifice to offer. And Abel did that, Cain did not. And so Abel's sacrifice was accepted. He was accepted by God. Cain was not. So that's one of the lessons that we learn, uh, a piece of instruction that we learn from the scriptures. And we see that same lesson again and again and again. And again, it seems to me that part of Cain's downfall was pride. You know, when he found out that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his were not, rather than just changing and offering what he should have, he was jealous and he, he killed his brother. Seems like there was a little pride. And I've got a few passages there about pride. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction, haughty spirit before stumbling. See, there's, there's some instructions for us. We'll see some of that in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, it's always been interesting to me there in Proverbs chapter 6. There the, the wise man lists, I believe it was seven things which the Lord hates. And at the top of the list was the, uh, the haughty eyes, the pride, the, the vain glory of life. It's a dangerous thing. And in the 101st Psalm, verse 5, it says, Whosoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. And no one who has a haughty look or an arrogant heart will I endure. God says, I'm not going to put up with it. Pretty strong warnings there in it. So we see that all through the scriptures then, it's, it's these lessons, there's warnings, there's instruction, there's encouragement. And all of that is a part of God's plan to save our souls, to help us to endure, and in the end, to receive that inheritance in heaven. about humility. There's, whoops, Noah got a H move there, didn't he? Same, same lessons in Noah. We're going to run out of time, so I'm, I'm going to, that's enough illustrations. We can see that over and over and over and over again. So the next couple of minutes, what I want to do is kind of kick in the afterburners, and we're going to do a, a light speed travel through time, okay? And we're going to get us up to Ezra chapter 1. Remember, let's start with Abraham. So Abraham made three, or God made three promises to Abraham. There was the land promise, the nation promise, and the seed promise. Abraham, I'm going to uh, give all of this land, Canaan, to your descendants. I'm going to make of your descendants a great nation. And in one of your descendants, all the nations of the earth is going to be blessed. And what we're going to see then is God's hand, God controlling this thing all the way through. So Abraham and Sarah had a son, but Abraham was actually over 100 years old when Isaac was born. Sarah was more than 90. That could have never happened except for God doing his part in this thing. So we always see God's hand in his plan of salvation. So Abraham and Sarah had a child named Isaac. Isaac in time had a child named Jacob. Later, his name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, and they became uh, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we stated a few minutes ago, those sons, uh, Joseph was one, and uh, Jacob gave him preference, and so his brothers hated him. 
they were intended to kill him, but they sold him into slavery to the Ishmaelites instead. The Ishmaelites took him to Egypt, sold him to Potiphar as a slave. And without going into a lot of the details that we don't have time for, he was falsely accused, he was put in prison, but God was with him because he remained faithful. In time, Pharaoh had a, a dream. It was about seven fat cows and seven lean cows. And nobody could interpret this dream, but a former prisoner remembered that God was with Joseph and he had interpreted a dream. And so Pharaoh called him and sure enough, God was with him, interpreted that dream about the seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Pharaoh uh, elevated him to number two uh, in the country and he oversaw the gathering of the seven, the, the grain for the seven years of good and the, and the distribution of it in the seven years of famine. And the resu result of that was that in time, Jacob and his entire family moved to Egypt and Pharaoh gave them a place to live and it was separate from the Egyptians. So they, did, they didn't intermingle and intermarry with Egyptians, but they were their own separate group of people. And over about 400 years, they grew to be probably somewhere to like two, maybe two and a half million strong. And by that time, of course, the Egyptians had enslaved them and they, they were greatly burdened. And God called Moses after about 400 years they'd been in Egypt and God called Moses to lead them out. And again, you see God's hand in all of it. He spoke to Moses from the burning bush. You remember that? He uh, used the 10 plagues to plague Egypt. And after the 10th one, Pharaoh finally released them. God opened the uh, parted the waters of the Red Sea. He fed them manna in the wilderness. He produced water for them from the rock out in a desert place. He cared for them all through the wilderness. And then eventually under uh, Joshua's leadership, they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land and possessed that land and they became a nation. And so there's two of God's promises are fulfilled, right? The land promise is fulfilled, and the nation promise. In time, after about 300 years under the rule of, of judges, they wanted a, a king. They demanded a king, and so God gave them King Saul. He didn't work out very well. Then he called, anointed a man after his own heart, King David. And David became king, and God made him a promise, and that promise was that one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Remember under David's grandson's rule, the, the kingdom was divided. The ten northern tribes was Israel. The two southern tribes were Judah. And it was David's descendants that remained on the throne all through the time of the nation of Judah. There were some good kings and there were some evil kings. The northern, the northern ten tribes only lasted about 208 years. They were so wicked that God finally allowed the Assyrians to destroy them. Judah lasted another 136 years. And, their, and because of their wickedness, finally God allowed the Babylonians to come and to take them into exile, to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy the temple. And uh, the last one of... David's descendants to sit on the throne uh, in Jerusalem was Zedekiah. I want you to look at this verse, what this says about Zedekiah. 
This is after the Babylonians had destroyed the temple and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and taken them into exile, and they captured the king. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him, and they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And they, and they put, the eye, put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. And so you think about that. Here's the last of David's descendants and what happened to him. They slaughtered his sons, so there's not going to be any more sitting on the throne, is there? They slaughtered his sons. And they put out his eyes and took him into Babylon where he would die. So what about God's promise then to David that one of his descendants was set on the throne forever? Is God not going to keep that promise? What about the third promise to Abraham? That all nations would be blessed in his seed, singular. How is God going to keep those promises when the last king and his sons have been killed? The answer to that can be found in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. And Lord willing, next week we'll take a look at Ezra chapters 1, 2, and 3 and we'll find the, the answer to that question. How does God keep those promises? But we know he, he always does. Again, thank you everyone for being here tonight. Appreciate your interest in the Bible and I hope, hope this has been interesting for you and to help you. And, uh, and going through these things, it seems like it helped me when I look at scriptures to, to look at it in the right light and to see what we should be getting out of that. I asked the question earlier, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? There may be someone here tonight who's never obeyed the gospel. If that's true, I want to ask you that question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you? If you don't, I would love to have a Bible study with you. Leland or Brother David Bunting or any one of the elders would love to sit down with you and study and show you the evidence that is abundant to teach you that uh, Jesus indeed is the Christ, the Son of God. If you do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, tonight is the time to obey the gospel. There will never be a better time. The devil... The old Satan, what he would say to you is, why don't you just put it off till next week? Just one more week. Just put it off till next week. You have plenty of time. Of course, we, we don't know that you'll have another opportunity. You might, you might not. But the devil knows, see, that's part of his scheming. He knows that if you put it off this time, you know what you should do, but I'm going to put it off. He knows that if you put it off this time, then next week it might be a little easier to put it off another week and the next week it'll be a little easier to put it off another week and eventually it could be like a scar if you if you burn yourself and it forms a scar that kills the nerve endings and now there's no feelings in that in that part of your skin and your conscience can get like that if you continue to resist the gospel in time your conscience can be seared and it may be that you would eventually get to where might not ever reply and respond to the gospel. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God,
tonight, why don't you repent of your sins, confess your faith before me, and be buried with Christ in baptism. His blood will wash away every sin. And what that does, that puts your feet on that straight and narrow path that leads to life. And join with us, and let's encourage and build up one another and continue in the, in the teaching of the gospel. And we can have that home in heaven when this life is over. If you're a Christian and there's sin entered into your life again, God is faithful and just to forgive. Tonight would be the best time, the only time that you really know that you have, to repent of your sin and return to the Lord. Whatever your spiritual need may be, we invite you to come while we stand. Let's sing.